Hey folks, what's going on? What's happening? Como van? Como están? How are you guys doing? Well, I hope. Good. Uh, don't you hate those people who are very pedantic and are like, I'm well, when they really mean I'm good, right? <laughs> it's I'm good. It means the same thing. It gets the same job done. Language evolves. And uh, it's kind of a fun fact of the English language. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Uh, good is just... Uh, means just as much as well. In fact, it's sort of an innovation of language. Language is meant to be, um, it's designed to be evolving. The people who sort of uh, keep it within that valence of, um, I don't know, rigidity. Sometimes that, that goes counter, it sort of makes, uh, that's what really the whole chapter, uh, How to Tame a Wild Tongue is about, kind of, right? Uh, but I think of that too, like how much stuff Shakespeare gave us. Um, that we wouldn't have otherwise to chair a meeting, right? Essentially, uh, verb to noun, right? A chair was a, was a noun, and then he made it into a verb. Um, I'm trying to think of what other uh, Shakespeareisms come to us to ask to do something. Whenever you ask to do something in Shakespearean times, he was an axe. A-X-E. I axed him. So anytime someone says, oh, that's not proper English, it's not. You, you have to ask someone. You don't ask someone. It's actually more proper English to say, he axed me. A-X-E. What are some other Shakespeareisms? So many of them. I have a poster on my door. Maybe you haven't checked that out yet. It's uh, 1063 South, if you find yourself up on campus. Uh, but it's got a whole list of things that... Uh, of things Shakespeare gave us, uh, but this is all. This is all to say that language evolves. Language, uh, when it doesn't evolve, it dies. That's the truth. Think of all the dead languages. Ancient Greek. How many of you guys know your declensions exactly? Right. So maybe some of you do. I don't know. But the you know, declensions or uh, Latin. Right. Who uses Latin uh, unless you're like the Pope, right? Or unless you're like uh, you took it in high school or something to try to sort of get all your prefixes right for the uh, SAT exam or something. But this is all to say, language evolves, and it's kind of exciting. Um, I have this uh, background music on. This is actually uh, Debussy, um, who was one of the first uh, Impressionist, he would bristle at that, one of the first uh, composers of the Impressionist movement of the 19th century. This is called Claire de Lune, or it's a riff on it. It's not Debussy per se, but it's, it's sort of a, a Pottington Bear riff. I'm using a lot of Pottington Bear because the, the bumper music is free. And frankly, I think it's kind of cool. I think he uh, does some really interesting work. Uh, but I, I saw this Claire de Lune and I was like, oh man, it's, this matches perfectly because we have so much uh, impressionistic uh, type of writing going on where there's no real through line. It's just a scattershot of a bunch of different uh, things that are happening within this uh, section that we're reading for today. And I want to start... Um, I want to start with uh, with um, I think Servicide. That's the one I want to start with. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that Gloria Anzaldú is per se impressionism, but I think this this sort of uh, I think of this section almost as like a mosaic of, of poetry or like a lyric essay we talked about uh, in previous iterations of this conversation, in which. She's exploring 
a lot of different ideas through various tropes. A trope is just a fancy word in English for um, concepts, right? A metaphor is a trope. A simile is a trope. Um, the diction that someone uses within a, uh, a story is a trope. But there's a lot of symbology that's sort of latent throughout. I'm thinking of decay. I'm thinking of um, uh, innocence. I'm thinking of along the lines of the grotesque. There's a gothic element, I would say, even to these to these pieces. Uh, but the overall impression is is one of uh, a sort of like a it's like a mosaic, right? I think of it almost like it's a portrait of like like pointillism. If if you're not familiar, uh, pointillism was a subsect of impressionism in the 19th century, in which they would make a portrait with a bunch of tiny little points. They would dip the uh, the paintbrush in like one color, hit it and then hit the canvas, and then go back, hit it with another color, and then hit it again, and then another color, and hit it again. And then there was this mosaic, really beautiful thing that would happen, in which if you stand too close, it looks like a, just a bunch of dots, right? But then you stand really far back, and suddenly it becomes something. It becomes uh, a painting, right? By the way, that's not all of the time, but most of the time that we're at museums, and we don't quite know what's happening in the painting, which is fine, actually. I think that's good, you know, to kind of question. Like, when you look at a Cy Twombly, C-Y-T-W-O-M-B-L-Y, that guy, and they've got the Cy Twombly Gallery in Houston. I kicked the table again. I'm doing that. Anyway, but you see that, and you're like, what's going on? And then you take two, three steps back, and you're like, oh, that's a bull. <laughs> it's supposed to be a squiggle that the cumulative effect of it is it's, it's a bull. But that's kind of a nice a nice way of looking at this section, too. You take two, three steps back to it, you know. You take each of the poems um, kind of as they come to you. And and uh, and then, you know, you think about it a little bit. What is the overall impression? Uh, I'm going to start with Servicide, which I think is an interesting one. I'll probably read three to four of these. Um, and I'll let you guys come to your own conclusions about what the impression is, right? I'm on page 126 here. Servicide. La Venadita, the small fawn. They had to kill their pet, the fawn. The game warden was on the way with his hounds. The penalty for being caught in possession of a deer was $250, or jail. The game warden would put su papi in la cárcel. How could they get rid of the fawn? Hide it? No, la guardia's hounds would snuff Venadita out. Let Menadita loose in the monte? They had tried that before. The fawn would leap away and seconds later return. Should they kill the Venadita? The mother and Prieta looked toward Las Carabinas propped against the wall behind the kitchen door, the shiny barrel of the twenty-two, the heavy metal steel of the forty-forty. No, if they could hear us pick up a mile and a half down the road, he would hear the shot. Quick, they had to do something. Cut Menadita's throat, club her to death. The mother couldn't do it. She, Prieta, would have to be the one. The game warden and his perros were a mile down the road. Prieta loved her poppy. In the shed behind the corral, where they'd hidden the fawn, Prieta found the hammer. She had to grasp it with both hands. She swung it up. The weight folded her body backwards. 
A thud reverberated on Benedita's skull. A wave undulated down her back. Again, a blow behind the ear. Though Benedita's long lashes quivered, her eyes never left Prieta's face. Another thud, another tremor. La Guardia and his hounds were driving up the front yard. The Venadita looked up at her. The hammer rose and fell. Neither made a sound. The tawny, spotted fur was the most beautiful thing Prieta had ever seen. She remembered they had found the fawn. She had been a few hours old. A hunter had shot her mother. The fawn had been shaking so hard, her long, thin legs were on the edge of buckling. Prieta and her sister and brothers had bottle-fed Benedita with a damp cloth and wiped her skin and watched her tiny, perfectly formed hooves harden and grow. Prieta dug a hole in the shed, a makeshift hole. She could hear the warden talking to her mother. Her mother's English had suddenly gotten bad. She was trying to stall La Guardia. Prieta rolled the fawn into the hole, threw in the empty bottle. With her fingers raked in the dirt, dust caked on her arms and face where tears had fallen. She patted the ground with her hands and swept it with a dead branch. The game warden was strutting toward her, his hounds sniffing, 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 the ground in the shed, the hounds sniffing, the hounds pawing, pawing the ground, the game warden straining on the leashes, Les dio un tiron, sacó los perros. He inspected the corrals, the edge of the woods, then drove away in his pickup. Wow, that's an intense, uh, intense read. I feel like I've read this so many times, and I, I don't know why they got to kill the fawn. Like, what the fuck is that about? I mean, I understand if it's alive, it's going to, like, but does it, like, make noises or something? You know, it's like, uh, you know, kind of like, why is she going to bring the hammer down on the fawn and then, like, bury it? Um, but I think, ultimately, this thing isn't even about the fawn. Uh, it's about the sort of terror of living within the borderlands. Um, I had to do an interview the other day in which someone asked me if I was from the valley of Texas, like the borderlands. Now I have a lot of roots there. I have family there and stuff. Um, but I was, I was sort of articulating that the borderlands as a space, as a psychic space fascinates me, you know, obviously because we study Gloria and Zaldúa and there's this sort of thirdness that is interesting to me. But, um, as a space itself, it, it it's, it's, uh, it's a very, it's terrifying because it's like, uh, it's a police state kind of, there's a sort of, um, there's awareness that you're always being watched. Right. Uh, and you're always being, you're always like a little bit suspect. There are checkpoints. There's sort of like CBP sort of roving vehicles and stuff like that. And so it's terrifying to me in a, in a completely different way. Um, and it's something that I don't romanticize uh, a lot, uh, but this is sort of like part of that, you know, this sort of like a uh, police state, it's almost like living under a regime or something, right? Um, that they would actually like kill this fawn off. Um, but I, this is a, this is sort of an interesting um, aside, I guess, to, to sort of get at the, the root of the matter, which is um, why kill the fawn? And I would even make the argument that this poem isn't even about the fawn, uh, but about the way in which, you know, inhumanity, like the inhumanity of a regime, 
of the game warden, right? He's going to come to your house and he's going to fucking bust you. And what if dad goes to jail? Like the, the, the fallout is real, uh, through no fault of their own. Right. Um, the fawn came to them through the sort of the cruelty of hunting. Right. Or you could say non-cruelty, right? We have a sort of this, uh, population explosion, at least in central Texas, uh, where my parents live now, just like uh, wild uh, deer. And so there's like a lot of incentive for them to, uh, for the game wardens to like, you know, Hey, feel free to hunt these guys, you know, or feel free to hunt these, these things. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, let me see if I can articulate this in like a sentence. The inhumanity of a system can cause you to be inhumane yourself if you capitulate to the rules of that system. I think the most clear example uh, of this, like on a macro level, is like, like you look at like communist regimes who stood against fascism, right? I'm thinking of like the the Soviet Union or the, the GDR of East Germany who started out good in, way, in that they were like, yes, let us defeat Nazism. And then identified so much or so much of the center of their identity was weighed in opposition to that fascism, was weighed in opposition to the exact thing that they were against or that they felt that might have oppressed them. And it's a longer history, but there's that struggle between uh, East and West, right? Between Russia and Germany. It's like, it goes way back. But this is all to say, when you define yourself against your enemy, when you fall into that dichotomy that Gloria Anzaldúa says uh, colonialism requires, or the patriarchy requires, or you could even say the game warden requires, you debase yourself in a way, right? You become less human in a way. You become the person that has to kill the fawn, that you rescued it, that really tender image where they're sort of wiping it, uh, the skin of the fawn, and with its perfect hooves and everything. Um, and then they succumb to the sort of uh, brutality that they saved the fawn from. It's interesting. It's not up for me to say whether this is a real anecdote or not. And I don't even know if Gloria Anzaldúa meant for this to be read as a true anecdote, though it is a kind of memoir of sorts, right? It falls. If we look at the artifact of the book, right, of Borderlands La Frontera, it is part of that sort of pseudo-biographical thing, but it, if it happened, man, holy shit, that is some brutal... Like, I don't know if you've ever had to kill a mouse or something, like, get stuck on a glue trap and then you gotta put it out of its misery. Uh, but it's the worst thing in the world, man. I've hit a mouse with a hammer before. I didn't explode it, but you know, you try to knock it unconscious and then kill it that way. But like, that's the worst feeling in the world. I couldn't imagine doing that to like a like a deer. Damn. Anyway, this is uh this is neither here nor there. If you look at the bottom of page 127, I was thinking about doing uh <laughs> I was thinking about doing one of those like uh, pop quiz things where it's like send me an email with like the weirdest thing that you killed. <laughs> like I'm actually kind of curious but then I'm not sure if I should. Um, I'm not going to do it. I, <laughs> I'm thinking like bugs and stuff. I think I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid of the answers. What if someone's like, I killed a man. 
It's like, I don't, ah, oh, fuck, now I got to report that. Don't tell me. Don't tell me the weirdest thing that you killed, right? I killed a turtle one time, man. No. That was the weirdest thing I had to kill was a, a, a mouse. Got stuck on it. My wife lived in a rat-infested apartment, a mouse-infested apartment in Union City, New Jersey. And I was visiting, and one got stuck on a glue trap. And it was like, <coughs> like yelling. Like, it was like, it was weird. It sounded almost like um, if there was like a tiny little man, like, <coughs> you know, kind of yelling. And uh, I was like, ah, I gotta, I can't. And I didn't want to drown it or anything. That's weird. So I was like, let me just put it in a bag and just, you know, just bop it real quick. Um, and that was the worst thing. I, it was a terrible feeling too. I was like, oh my God. Uh, but I, I don't wish it on any of you guys to to have to go through that. Uh, anyway, this is the first section at the bottom of page 127 where Gloria Zaldúa is um, giving us actual definitions for the Spanish she's using, right? Uh, she's like, servicide, the killing of a deer. It's interesting there's like an actual name for that, right? Um, an archetypal symbology, the self appears as a deer for women, right? So in that context, right, the deer is like a kind of symbology for womanhood, Um and so you could either read her sister doing that as like a act of compassion or an act of aggression or, or it could be read in multiple ways. Su papi in la cárcel, the father in jail. Monte, the woods. Prieta, literally one who is dark-skinned. A nickname. Les dio un tirón, sacó los perros. Jerk the dogs out. Interesting, yeah. But anyways, I, I, think, I think that book, uh, or that book, that poem is interesting for for a lot of interesting reasons. Uh, it's the second in this section that we're reading for today, but for me, it's like I almost feel like it should have been the first. It's it's one of the more powerful ones, and it's one of the ones that sort of grounds us in in the uh, in that sort of like mammalian imagery, uh, that trope that carries throughout. Which I, I'm curious to hear what you're about, uh, or to hear what you guys think of it. Uh, if we go to the next page, we get um, this sort of like. Uh, it's like other livestock, like the horse, right? Para la gente de Hargill, Texas. Hargill is a city in the valley. I'll go ahead and read it. Psalm 128. Great horse running in the fields, come thundering toward the outstretched hands, nostrils flaring at the corn, only with knives in the hidden hands. Can a horse smell tempered steel? Anoche, some kids cut up a horse. It was night and the pueblo slept. The Mexicans muttered among themselves. They hobbled the two front legs, the two hind legs, kids aged 16, but they're gringos, and the sheriff won't do a thing. He'd just say, boys will be boys, just following their instinct. But it's the mind that kills. The animal, the Mexicanos murmur, killing it would have been a mercy. Black horse running in the dark, came thundering toward the outstretched hands, nostrils flaring at the smell. Only it was knives in the hidden hands. Did it pray all night for this morning? It was the owner came running, 30-30 in his hands, put the caballo out of its pain. The Chicanos shake their heads, turn away some rich father, fished out his wallet, held out the folds of green as if green could staunch red. Pools dripping from the ribbons on the horse's flanks, cast up testicles, grow back the ears on the horse's head, no ears of corn but sheaths, hiding blades of steel, earth drinking blood, sun rusting it, in that small Texas town the Mexicanos shuffle their feet, 
shut their faces, stare at the ground, dead horse, neighing in the night, come thundering toward the open faces, hooves iron-shod hurling lightning, only it is red, red in the moonlight, in their sleep the gringos cry out, the Mexicanos mumble, if you're Mexican, you are born old. Man, that's such a powerful uh, poem. It's such a powerful last line, too. The, Mexi the Mexicanos mumble, if you're Mexican, you are born old. When I think of Anzaldúa, I think of sort of like the many lives, the many ancestors you carry on your back, right? Or you carry, uh, you carry with you in your blood, right? That lineage. Um, but I think of the horse too, like uh, as sort of a symbol of the colonial world, right? The horses that came from Spain, uh, and the owner putting it out of its misery. But it's, it's essentially about boys luring a horse as if they were going to feed it and then they stab it to death. Uh, and the sheriff says, well, boys will be boys, right? And there's this kind of like passive acceptance of violence. You notice she really doesn't say uh, who the boys are. Anoche, some kids, she says, cut up a horse. It was night and the pueblo slept. The Mexicans mutter among themselves. They hobbled the two front legs two hind legs, kids age 16, but they're gringos. I guess she does say, sorry, I missed that. Uh, but they're gringos and the sheriff won't do anything. He just say, boys will be boys, just following their instinct. Right? It's interesting. There's like a play on instinct. Uh, obviously, there's this horde of hearkening back to like colonial era, or maybe this kind of like this uh, contact zone, this violence, uh, this, this um, ideological, but also literal violence between uh, you know, the gringo and, and the land, the gringo and the and the, the animals that inhabit that land or, or the, you know, the kind of conquering of that land. But there's a kind of murder with impunity that, that happens. Uh, and I can't help but wondering if that last line is sort of in con, in, or drawing a line toward that. If you're Mexican, you, you're old, right? Uh, what did she say? If you're Mexican, you're born old. It's almost like you're born into a set of circumstances. You're born into this, um, into this era, or into this schematic of of race relations. Um, that doesn't seem to change generation to generation, right? I'm interested in in that early on we get so much of this animal imagery, this mammalian sort of like, um, you know, livestock imagery, right? Not necessarily that like fawns or deer or livestock, but you know what I'm saying, like farm rural stuff. And it's a way in which I feel like as part of this, we've talked about this impressionist image that's happening within this section. I can't help but feel like Gloria Anzaldúa is in part drawing our attention as the reader toward the vis viscerality of existence within the borderlands uh, or within the spaces that she's talking about. So not only are the injustices, ideological injustices, right? Um, not only is a horse being, horse being murdered, but there's a kind of like viscerality to it, right? There's that image we get at the very top, pools dripping from the ribbons. 
think of that. I just think of like flesh coming out of like a wound or something. Just like ribbons of flesh. On the horse's flanks could cast up testicles. The image there is just sort of like the nerve endings of the testicles just, uh, you know, it's like this, this horse is just mutilated, right? In a very perverse way. Grown back the ears on the horse's head. No ears of corn, but sheaths. Hiding blades of steel, earth drinking blood, sun rusting it in that small Texas town. The Mexicanos shuffle their feet, shut their faces, stare at the ground, right? It's kind of shame or a kind of outrage at that this thing happened here, right? Uh, this thing or this sort of violation of not only the land, but like of, of this animal that had dignity, right? Uh... And it's interesting, I, I think that Gloria Andaluad chooses not to end the poem in that way, not to show us the mutilated horse, but to show us the, the horse triumphant, right? Dead horse, neighing in the night, come thundering toward the open faces, right? As you that closed faces looking down, and the green goes with the open faces, right? Toward the open faces, hooves iron shod, right? You can think of these like hooves on the horse, hurling lightning. Right, only it is red, red in the moonlight. In their sleep, the gringos cry out. The Mexicanos mumble. If you're Mexican, you are born old. Right, I'm always confused by what that line means. The gringos cry out. Right, I wonder if this is like a nightmare. If that horse is supposed to be this kind of, um, uh, I don't know, this this kind of um, like image or this this haunting that they have to re relive. Um, this kind of sin that the perpetrators have to relive over and over and over again. Um, but we get sort of early echoes of sort of like the ways in which those, despite or in spite of such violence, right? I guess even livestock, you know, there is sort of like a cover-up going on even with the sheriff who says, well, boys will be boys and kind of dismisses it. But just... Beyond there, you get the sort of inference, too, that, you know, the, the horse is almost a symbol of the Mexicanos, or of, of, like, you know, if we're talking about mestizaje, right, part colonial, right? And it would make sense, because as a symbol, it is a kind of colonial symbol. Uh, and it would mesh, because there's a kind of, we get another kind of sort of, like, a parallel of the self. In the fawn, it becomes this feminine uh, energy that, that Gloria Anzaldu is in, invoking in the, um, in the first poem we read. But in this one, it's it's also mirror the self. But the echo here is that there's also kind of you can kill Mexicans with impunity, right? Boys will be boys, uh, and as it, it would make sense because that sort of like you know the the people looking at the ground and the sort of this nightmare, this uh, almost like an original sin kind of haunting the gringo imagination. Um, it really draws your eye to sort of the echoes of violence, not only in that place but within that landscape. Um, Early Texas, and we haven't talked about this yet, but early Texas was um, like criminally savage. Um, uh, if you look at any of the, if you research any of the borderlands um, history, you'll no, you'll quickly notice that so much of early white settler colonialism in Texas was just white supremacist ideology. Um, there was a real uh, detestation, uh, this real sort of like systematic, almost unraveling of 
uh, of the social fabric. They wanted to expel as many Mexicans as possible. In fact, did in the early 20th century, um, right around the time, I want to say, of the Mexican Revolution, there was a sort of like mass migration of Mexican and Mexican-Americans back, right? They deported people um, who were born in the United States, right? They, were, they wanted to get rid of them. But uh, if you look way back even further than that, uh, and you look at some of the, the, like, the Comanche Wars, or you look at sort of uh, any of the stuff that happened out in way West Texas, I'm thinking like Alpine, uh, or even recently with Candelaria, right? Um, Candelaria, Texas, uh, which is a very small town that's been sort of disconnected. It ha has really close relations with Mexico. In fact, like the, the nearest hospital is right across the border, um, but the border patrol had shut down that entire bridge. And so if you have to, if you're living in Candelaria and you need to go to a hospital, the, f the closest one in Texas is like three hours away. So imagine you're giving birth and you're like, oh, fuck, I need, a, I need to get to an emergency room like right away or to the delivery room right away. Um, that bridge no longer exists. And so just a massive amount of cruelty or, or you read any of these sort of um, the various massacres that took place out there or the lynchings that people forget that Mexican-Americans were lynched too in the early 20th century um, and late 19th century. Uh, one of the most famous ones was actually in uh, Georgetown, Williamson County. It was a Mexican guy who was married to a German woman, had a 14-year-old daughter, uh, and because of miscegeny laws, which says no interracial marriage should take place, they lynched all of them uh, kind of a couple miles north of the Georgetown, uh, what is today the sort of um, like town square, like the, the, the old courthouse. And uh, it was a it was a massive uh, massive um, case at the time, and, and uh, eventually those guys were brought to justice, I think. Um, but it took like an outside prosecutor and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, um, I think this is sort of what Glow Dance do is unpacking the 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 latent uh, you know like violence of these spaces that we forget about. We kind of talked about it in a little bit in, in Natalie Diaz's work, but uh, the sort of the casual violence of, of that echo throughout time, that have resonances of echo uh, in, in this era. But I'm interested in the way in which Grodian Zaldu is using um, animals um, outside of sort of uh, like the plumes, uh, serpent or the, the, the quadlicue, that kind of thing to, to, draw, uh, to draw tropes into her work. It's interesting. Cool. All right. I want to read, I'm thinking about just going to the next one, but maybe not. I'll read Nopalitos, because that's an interesting one as well. Let's, let's read Nopalitos on page 134. For, for those of you who don't know, a nopal is just like a cactus, right? And, and nopales, you know, you can eat them, you can sort of fry them up and call them rajas, like little strips of, of cactus, and put them in a taco, and they're actually really good. Uh, but I think they're really good for diabetes, too. I don't know. Like, is there some people who say it has some sort of anti-diabetic properties? Uh, check it out, man. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Anyway, no palitos. It's that time of day when the musty smell of dust hangs in the air, mingling with the scent of orange blossoms. Dogs sprawl in the heat, tongues loll, drip saliva, flanks ripple off flies. The wind shifts. I spell... I smell mesquite burning. Next door in her backyard, La Senora stirs a huge olla a menudo. Uh, it's like a, an olla is like a big clay bowl. 
of menudo. On the steps of the back porch, hunched over a bucket, I carefully pull out a sprig of mesquite, cushioning the top layer of cactus. Pluck out a tiny nopalito. At the base of the stump I lay, the sharp blade under the tender curl, sheathing each thorn, a tangy green smell seeps through the afternoon. I throw the bleeding nopal into a pan, pull out another. It takes hours to, define, to defang cactus. The thought of them, tender, cooked in chile colorado, keeps me stooped over the cubeta, ignoring the tiny slivers piercing my thumb. Under the sighing leaves and the lengthening shadows of the palo blanco, a gallo stretches his wings, darts headlong toward a hen, pounces, beak-seizing crest he pumps her, squawking she shakes him off, fluffing her feathers, raining gold dust in the sunlight. Overhead, the immense blue, across the road, Theo Nosario unwinds his hose, water, mist, dusk, jasmine, and rose. The women gather on porches. The two in twos and threes murmur and rock chairs lapping the edges. Their laughter swells over the garden, laves me, and then evaporates in the, in the still air. Though I'm part of their comaraderia, I am one of them am one of them. I left and have been gone a long time. I keep leaving, and when I am home, they remember no one but me had never left. Had ever left, I should say. I listen to the grillos more intently than I do the regaños. I have more languages than they. I am aware of every root of my pueblo. They, my people, are not. They are the living, sleeping roots. I sweep up mesquite leaves, thorns embedded in my flesh, stings behind my eyes. The first thing I want to point your uh, attention to is this first stanza, the launching sort of initial salvo, which is filled with this um, visceral imagery um, that's, again, the sort of mammalian trope again, this, uh, um, this um, animal-like trope. It's that time of the day when the musty smell of dust hangs in the air mingling with the scent of orange blossoms. Dogs sprawl in the heat, right? You can see the dogs sort of laid out. Tongues lull, drip saliva, right? Very visceral image again. Flanks ripple off flies. The wind shifts. I smell mesquite burning. I think of that too, like mesquite burning or mesquite, the smell of mesquite or smoked mesquite, uh, barbecue or something like that. It's like a very South Texas Central Texas kind of smell. Very unique. Next door in her backyard, La Senora stirs a huge olla of menudo, a huge thing of menudo. On the steps of her back porch, hunched over a bucket, I carefully pull out a sprig of mesquite, cushioning the top layer of cactus. Right. It's one of those things, too, where I think of just the the, the labor of going into making nopales into sort of de-spine nopales and here nopales become symbolic of of the roots right um, they have their thorns they have their sort of prickles but ultimately they're nourishing uh, and we go sort of to the end here um where Ana Lewis says i left and have been gone a long time i keep leaving and when i'm home they remember no one but me had ever left i listen to the griots more intently uh, the griots are, are cicadas, right? Um, then I do the regaños. Regaños are like the scoldings, right? So she's sort of conflating 
the cicadas with uh, like, you know, like kind of like the na- uh, ne'er-do-wells of, of the people who just stayed behind, right? You can imagine them like gossiping and, and, and kind of having the barbs and, you know, they're judging you in a way. I have more languages than they. I am aware of every root of my pueblo. They, my people, are not. They are the living, sleeping roots. Again, we kind of get that disconnect. There's a there's a kind of a defensiveness that Anzaldúa is sort of, or at least the persona within this poem of Anzaldúa is, is putting forth and saying, whatever their barbs, whatever their sort of judgments against me or whatever, I speak more tongues than them, right? Uh, meaning... Not only do I maybe literally speak more tongues, but I can, I, there's a thirdness. I've moved beyond, like, I've seen the world. I, I've been more worldly. I'm not rooted. Um, but they are the living and breathing root, right? And she kind of still has a respect for that, right? They are the root from which I kind of sprung and then just became something else. Uh, and maybe we sort of get a little bit of, like, imagery that harkens to the burning mesquite, Right. Uh, the mesquite that evolves into smoke and becomes this third thing to use to do something else. Um, but I think it's interesting too, there's at once like an honor for that, um, there's an honor for those roots, but there's also sort of a, an acknowledgement that she's sort of um, moved past them or moved beyond them. And there's that disconnect that we've talked about earlier, right? Um, I can't help but wonder sort of when I'm thinking of like this impressionism, this sort of pointillism, these scattershot of poems, if, if, if that's kind of an exploration or there's what's going on here is an exploration of violence, right? Not only violence in a visceral kind of violence, right? Uh, not only the violence from institutionally, we get in that first poem, um, the service side, but we also get in, in, uh, within this poem too, right? In, 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 and then we get, of course, we get the horse with another sort of visceral imagery, but in this poem too, in, in that there's this kind of, um, a violence to cleaving oneself off from uh, their past, right? She's like a like a kind of nopal, a part of her. But if there's also sort of a, a riff going on here too. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's like you know when you when you when someone says like you know he has a nopal en la cara, like you know he el que lleva la la nopal en la cara. He, he's like it's usually about someone who's trying to be too white, right? Or quote unquote too white or aspire. Uh, to something that is sort of like this uh, whiteness or something. Um, but he has no nopal en la cara, meaning you have like, you have the nopal on your face. It's sort of like a, like your nose or something that's like kind of bulbous nose, right? <laughs> and, uh, but it's, the nopal en la cara is like, he, that guy's like very Mexican, but he's he's trying to be something that, that he's not. And I wonder if it's her way of sort of even poking fun at herself by being like, you know, that nopal is something that you, the roots are something that, you know, wherever you go in the world, you are who you are. That's kind of true. Well, I think it kind of depends on how old you are. When I was younger, when I was really young, I could travel and I had the opportunity to travel to a, a quite a few places, but I felt like it was easier to to blend in or easier to sort of absorb and to be absorbed and you change and you change a lot when you're when you travel. That's why I think travel is so important uh for people of any age, but especially between the ages of like 18 and 25, like those are really magical ages. Um, it's worth going into debt to travel. You should travel if you're that age. Um, but the older I get, I remember I had to, I was, um, I had a guest professorship in, in Germany, in Leipzig, um, which is, uh, Southwest of Berlin, uh, the former East Germany, uh, 
and it was interesting. It was a really interesting time. I was thinking of, at that time, Trump had just been elected, and I was thinking a lot about walls, and, you know, of course, we have the Berlin Wall, um, which was sort of, uh, had, had locked in a lot of Eastern Germany, um, and there was also this feeling of, of being a stranger in one's own homeland, which I think a lot of East Germans feel in a unified Germany. They don't feel like they quite belong, just like Chicanos don't feel like they quite belong. So for me, there was this like real interesting connect that I, I felt like it was a really interesting time to be there. Um, but ultimately, it was, it was one of those things where I, I talk about wherever you go in the world, you are who you are. Like, I just did the same stuff in Germany that I did. Like, I just graded the same things and, like, you know, taught the same, had the same routine, uh, went to the grocery store. And I, was, I remember just thinking, like, God, how, how boring am I? But then there was something almost celebratory, like, oh, yeah, I guess I, I have arrived in some way. Like, I am, uh, I am who I am. <laughs> you can't escape that. I'm as boring as I've ever been in Germany, right? Uh, and that's kind of, uh, that was kind of humbling, right? I think I used to have these images when I was younger about how exciting my life would be. Like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And in some ways it is. some ways it's too exciting. You know, I, I sometimes get sent off on like pieces to do like, like journalism or something. And then, it, and then, and then it's like, it's too action packed. Like I had to go shoot guns with a guy one time. Uh, but then they were like big guns and I was like, I'm all right, I'm done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like too action packed. And that was like some scary stuff. And I don't do the big guns, man. I don't even do the little guns. I don't own a gun. Maybe, maybe you guys, I'm talking about guns on, 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 uh, on the podcast, but, um, for me, I'm just, especially, I, I wrote a lot, so much about the drug war in Mexico that I feel like, so 80% of all the guns in the, that are involved in, in all of the murders that have happened in Mexico, all the gun wars come from Texas. And so I have a real sort of oogie boogie feeling about them. You know, I'm under no impression that when I buy them, that they don't end up in someone else's hands if I sell them. You know what I mean? Anyway, I don't own one. Uh, but if you do, I'm not against it either. It's like, whatever. Uh, let's move on to, uh, let's move on to the last poem for today. I'm trying to think of, there's, there's a really good one called El Son of Abiche, which is a, it's a pretty famous one, but I'm thinking I want to make this one count. Let's do Sea of Cabbages. No, no, let's do, we call them greasers. I think that's a good one. This is a canonical one meaning it belongs to the canon, right? Page 156, we call them greasers. I found them here when I came. They were growing corn in their small ranchos, raising cattle, horses, smelling of wood smoke and sweat. They knew their betters, took off their hats, placed them over their hearts, lowered their eyes in my presence, weren't interested in bettering themselves. Why they didn't even own the land but shared it. it. Wasn't hard to drive them off. Cowards they were, no backbone. I showed them a piece of paper with some writing. Told them they owed taxes. Had to pay right away or be gone by manana. By the time me and my men had waved the same piece of paper to all of the families, it was all frayed at the ends. Some loaded their chickens Children, wives, and pigs into rickety wagons. Pans and tools dangling, clanging from all sides. Couldn't take their cattle. During the night, my boys had frightened them off. Oh, and there were a few troublemakers who claimed we were the intruders. Some even had land grants, had appealed to the courts. It was a laughing stock. Them not even knowing English. 
Still, some refused to budge, even after we burned them out. And the women, well, I remember one in particular. She lay under me, whimpering. I plowed into her hard, kept thrusting and thrusting, felt him watching from the mesquite tree, heard him keening like a wild animal. In that instant, I felt such contempt for her, brown face and beady black eyes like an Indian's. Afterward, I sat on her face until her arms stopped flailing. Didn't want to waste a bullet on her. The boys wouldn't look me in the eyes. I walked up to where I had tied her man to the tree and spat in his face. Lynch him, I told the boys. It's a really brutal poem. Uh, it's one that I'm like almost even like, I'm like, man, like, do you even end on that one for today? But maybe you do, man. Maybe you do. Um, like I sort of mentioned before, there was like a ton of lynchings that actually took place uh, in Central and South Texas throughout the 20th century. Uh, a lot of people think it only happened in specific regions in this in the American South or that it only happened in the South. It happened all over the country. Um, but Mexican-Americans were targeted quite a bit. Um, and that's one sort of portrait of a lynching. Um, What do you say about it outside of sort of like the directness of it as it has so much power? I mean, I could talk about the land grants and that whole thing, but it's like for me, the most salient thing within that poem is just the, the bald faced um, inhumanity of it, right? Um, it's a rape poem and the contempt, right? The dehumanization of the brown body in this, in this space. For a lot of people who haven't really studied sort of Texas history in depth, um, the land grants were um, essentially parcels of land that were given to what then became Mexican-American farmers, uh, but they had been in their families for centuries um, when it was still Estado de Texas, which was like the, um, the state of Texas. Uh, it was actually Texas and Coahuila was one state. Um, uh, today, Coahuila is a separate state within Mexico. Um, but at, at one time they were one culture. And so that's why you see a lot of like, sort of like the cowboy boots and the cowboy culture and that kind of, um, thing for all that's been said about cowboys and whether they're real or not, they were totally real. Um, but that was, uh, sort of like so many of the people who inhabited that land inhabited them by like having that land parceled out to them from the previous government, government, which was Spain, right? So you see a lot of those early haciendas or a lot of the early sort of uh, ranches um, that were parceled out, especially in the north of Mexico at that time, uh, was given by the Spanish government. Uh, not too long ago, there were actually lawyers uh, in Texas who were sort of still um, trying to get the original owners or the descendants of the people who own that land um, give them that land back because so many of the sort of local governments and local, uh, you know, sheriffs and all that stuff, all the police that were in place, um, they stole that land from the original landowners by saying, well, this is a new country now and that we don't recognize that, or, um, we can't find the, the, the original land grant. We think this is a falsification of it, uh, or sometimes, uh, outright taking it, um, uh, forcing themselves onto the land and then just, like in this, like this is showing, uh, just snuffing out a family. Um, and this was kind of, uh, a lot of people say, well, this must be an aberration or this must be a few bad apples, but 
it, it was pretty par for the course throughout late 19th and early 20th century Mexico. Uh, I think I talked about in this podcast in the past that actually that's how a lot of attempts to create early Texas were, were um, basically happened. Um, you have one parcel of land, you start looking at who else has land around you, and then you start absorbing that land by any means necessary, by force or by, by legal means. Uh, and then once you have enough land, then you declare yourself a republic. Uh, and there, before before you know the Alamo, any of that stuff happened. There were like dozens of people who came to Texas trying to create their own countries, um, republics, right? Republics of Texas. They're like different iterations of it. And you look at the flags, and they're kind of silly as shit. They look re- really funny. Um, uh, but it was like any anyone and their mom came and just tried to uh, start a country, right? <laughs> and this kind of like in between. Uh, but you think too, like I like. So it's interesting I bring up Leipzig. I remember going through Leipzig at that time, and there was an art exhibition around the country where this guy started this thing called Stumble Stones, which was about the whole idea where they were these sort of like brass stones that were hammered into the ground, into concrete, uh, in a lot of different places around Germany that showed that like it had the names, the occupations, and the date of death of, of the Jews that had been killed during the, the Nazi regime. And the idea was that like, think of how many people were taken from their homes here. And then think of how much wealth was just disappeared overnight because they took everything they had. They took jewels, they took possession of their apartment. They took possessions of their homes that they owned their homes. Um, imagine some of them had cars. Some of them had a lot of, you know, like it was, it was, a uh, there was a whole generation of wealth that was lost uh, and that same thing happened in Texas, right? So many people lost um, the land that they, that was they inherited from their ancestors, the land that they had that had they had the deed to, they had the title to. Imagine today if someone just takes your land and just says, not even that we're going to not give you what it's worth, which is actually happening in Houston right now too. I don't know if you guys have been following the expansion of I forty five, but um, they're they're literally going to people and just saying this is eminent domain now. We own this land. <laughs> And then they're paying the people like market value for what it, what it's worth. But these people weren't even paid market value. In, in the worst case scenario, they were just outright killed. Uh, worst worst case scenario, just out, uh, raped. And this is that scene. Um, but it's interesting that that Glorian it closes out um, section two, uh, um, section two of this of this of this book with with that image, right? Um, when I think of this section in its entirety, I keep thinking again of those tropes of the animals. I keep thinking about the viscerality, but then just the injustices, right? Um, and the ways in which I think is an extension of the first section, the, the ways in which colonialism can make a, a, a the, the dichotomy, the, the, the need to fall on one side or the other, the good or the bad, um, falls, uh, can make a monster of you too, right? Uh, and to this end, is it, you think of legality, and I think it's it's another thing that she's presenting as a uh, as a as a as as sort of an uh, an aperture here, right? An opening that we might interrogate is saying in which way is legality also a kind of binary or a construct? You know, being on the right side of the law is that a is 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 it a privilege to be on the right side of the law, right? Um, and who who gets to make up the law, right? If the sheriff says, uh, like the, like he did in horses, oh, it's just a few bad apples. 
but then someone's the law also says that whoever owns that land you know doesn't own that land right it becomes a really kind of gray territory um and for me this is always my own kind of like i this is my riff on it this isn't what gloria anzaldua's intent is but i keep thinking of like that thirdness that anzaldua says you know this can be a liberation practice we can write into the thirdness it's always and it's sort of the beauty of the borderlands you know and there's a there's a kind of like um that mestizaje, that 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 kind of that that moving forward into the third thirdness is a can be a constructive thing. Um, we see in this passage the ways in which that thirdness can also be a really retrograde or destru- destructive thing, right? Um, because legality and illegality is a gray area. Um, the enforcement of laws or, or not, right, is a, is a gray area. Uh, the negotiation of one's um, dignity. In the context of, of of these things, is a gray area, um, and so to to navigate that, to to have the social navigability, to uh, as a Mexican American, to navigate those tropes of legality, illegality, um, literally life and death, uh, and the various systems, the American system, the the Mexican sort of way of being, you know, the sort of Mexican customs, American culture. It's a very complex dance, um, and there's a kind of uh, I think Anzalua has a respect for it. She talks about the roots as a living, breathing thing, right? They, they, they've created their own system in a way. Um, but it can also be a really... Um, that grayness can also go the other way, too, I think, like retrograde. Uh, I think it's something, you know, to, not to bring it too much into what we're seeing now, but I feel like there is a kind of... Um, there's a kind of, of feeling along in, in the country right now, too, uh, not only because of the pandemic, um, but also just because of the politics and and the way in which you know that thirdness works. Um, what is legality just, right? Um, is it is is it is it justice? Uh, and, I, and I think it's 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 a question that every generation has had to uh, confront. You look at you look at like the Nazi regime, right? Um, not to say that, I mean, the Nazi regime is a really extreme example, but I'm using it because I was talking about Leipzig earlier. But the idea like th- those, everything they did was completely legal, but it wasn't, right? <laughs> we know that, <laughs> but there were laws on the books that they created, but just because something is illegal doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing that grayness cuts both ways. Anyway, uh, cool. That's pretty much what I had for you guys today. I think I think I hit all the things I wanted to hit for this section. Um, cool. You guys be good. Don't forget to call uh, the people you love in your life. Right? Call some people. All right. Dig it. I'll see you guys next time.